encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Hosea, Hosea chapter 10. That's back there where the pages stick together in your Bible. Hosea chapter 10. It's been a good couple weeks. A week ago Wednesday, I had the privilege to drive to Des Moines for a few hours and spend with our legislators um, to pray with them. First one I prayed with, you know Phyllis Thede, I think. Phyllis Thede used to be on the school board, a teacher in Davenport, and she's the first one. She couldn't wait to come out, pray, and get her picture taken. So she's a wonderful Christian lady, and continue to pray for her. And Chris Knoyer, who's part of the northern part of Scott, Scott County, she, she came out and she said, you pastors always show up just at the right time when we're discouraged and we need prayer. And so continue to pray. Carrie puts at the bottom of our prayer sheets every week, the names of our representatives. So continue to, to pray for them. And Family Leaders has a great ministry where they're not really emphasizing policy as much as they used to, but more ministry to the legislators there. And so it's a really cool thing that they're doing. Now yesterday I had the opportunity to go to Iron Sharpens Iron. And I'll tell you, I got energized hearing 600 men in a room singing Great Is Thy Faithfulness and other songs like that. And Gives you goosebumps. So it was a great day to get together with men all over the Quad Cities. We're going to finish up the book of Genesis. Finally, we've been in expository preaching through this about 30 sermons or maybe 31. And uh, as we wrap it up, I just want to kind of review and cement into place some of the things, some of the truths that we covered. The first 11 chapters, we pretty much went verse by verse. But then the narratives began, and we looked at the life of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and finally Joseph. And so I kind of want to wrap the package back up and tie a ribbon on it today. But we begin in Hosea chapter 10 as we talk about unpacking the baggage of sin in our lives. Hosea chapter 10, beginning with verse 12. Verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Think about today. We've got rain, the idea of rain. God wants to rain righteousness upon us. Verse 13, you've plowed iniquity. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. And all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbal on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Today we're going to talk about breaking up the fallow ground. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Please take out your notes. Got lots of blanks today, but we're going to go through those pretty quick. But a good, Jesus often used repetition in his teaching, and I want to do that today to cement down these truths of the book of Genesis. First of all, the titles of Genesis. The Hebrew title of the book is the initial Hebrew word, which means in the beginning. And the English title is Genesis. In our Bibles, it was derived from the Greek translation of the word teleto. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the Septuagint version, which is the Hebrew, written to the Greek, it says this in Genesis 2.4, this is the book of the genesis of heaven and earth. 
The author, we said, was Moses. Scripture and tradition support the idea of Moses being the author, not only of Genesis, but the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. It's believed by Jewish religious scholars and the church for most of history that he was the author. It wasn't until the late 1800s and critical thinking came in, critical theory of, of scriptures, in Germany and other places, that they began to doubt that Moses wrote it. Some believe Moses lived approximately 1550 to 1200 BC. Rabbinical scholars believe Moses lived 1391 to 1271. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, 1592, but the Exodus most likely was in 1445 before the Common Era. So when was it written? Nobody knows. That's the answer. We don't know exactly when Genesis was written. The purpose of the book of Genesis is to show God's divine choosing of Israel to be his chosen people and to establish an ancestry of people through which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would redeem mankind and reign over them for eternity. The theme of the book is the divine choice of Israel. Think of that. God chose Israel of all the nations of the world to be set apart by God for his service and the keeping of his laws while dwelling in a land promised to them by God's covenant in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. In the key verse, the first place we see the gospel in the Bible in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so how is Christ seen in the book of Genesis? He's the redeemer and the deliverer, and we see that especially in Joseph. Some say he was a type of Christ, how he was the deliverer, the ultimate deliverer of Israel. So here we go with a few things to fill in on your outline the outline of the book of Genesis, the preface of the redemption story. This is the beginning of it all. And remember, the redemption story is like a scarlet thread that runs through from Genesis to Revelation. We see the perfect creation, paradise. Paradise. God created a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve, who he created, to live there in a boat. And we don't know how long they lived in that wonderful state of innocence before sin, but they had the perfect creation. But then second of all, the fall of humanity, perversion. How Eve ate the fruit, Adam ate the fruit, and sin passed down through Adam to all mankind. They perverted God's plan and his creation. Then we see the consequences of sin, the punishment. The punishment for sin. He lays out all the consequences for the fall. And then we see the destruction due to sin, the purifying. Okay? In Genesis 5 through 11, remember, we had Noah's Ark, where God purified the world of sin and down to eight people. And then we Tower of Babel, how he scattered the nation, the people into nations and had them have languages to go off on their own. And so we saw very interesting things as God set up the home, he set up government, and he dealt with sin. But then we get to chapter 11, verse 27 through the end of the book, the patriarchal path of redemption. Remember, Abraham, he was the doubter. We talked about him in four or five sermons. The doubter, he became confident in his faith. We read about Lot. Remember, Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, 
Then in chapter 19, he was in Sodom. And then later on, we see Sodom was in him. The world was in him. And he had to escape for his very life. He was the compromiser. And he paid the price for his sin. Isaac was the promised one who passed on the sin of deception to his children. Began with Abraham lying about his wife, saying he was his sister. Passed on to Isaac, who lied about his wife as well. Passed on to Jacob, the one who became Israel. Jacob meant deceiver, but God gave him the name Israel later, and he paid the price for his deception. And you know, Jacob stole his brother's blessing and birthright, but he met his match in deception and manipulation when he met his uncle Laban. And he had all kinds of issues there he had to deal with. And finally, we get to Joseph, the deliverer, who broke the ancestral sin of deception in the family tree. He broke it. He ended it. And we'll talk about that at the end of the message. So why is it important to study Genesis 1, 1 through 11? Well, these chapters need to be understood by literal interpretation. The faulty thinking and challenges from critical scholars of the Bible and scientists do not come close to dissuading us from what God has said. Francis Schaeffer, who was an apologist in the late 20th century, he made this declaration. If he was on an airplane and the flight was an hour long and he had someone sitting next to him who did not know the Lord, he would spend 55 minutes talking about the beautiful creation that God had made and the purpose that he made mankind and spend the last five minutes sharing the gospel of Christ with this person. You see, we need Genesis it's foundational. We don't start with the Bible, with the gospel. We start with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth for a purpose and a destiny, which God determined. And understanding and believing the doctrine of creation in the book of Genesis is foundational in accepting the rest of the Bible because the Holy Spirit has spoken to us and given it to us and it explains to us how we understand the real world around us. Second of all, why study Genesis 1 through 11? The inerrancy of scripture depends upon it. We talked about the verbal, plenary. That means every word and phrase. Inspired means that God breathed, inerrant without error in its original manuscripts. That God gave the word to 40 different authors over a 1,500 year span. And as he did that, he used their personality, their literary abilities to write in their style, but it was inspired by God. In Matthew 5.18, it says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Basically, he's saying every I will be dotted, every T will be crossed, the punctuation, everything is going to happen just as it's laid out in the word of God. Thirdly, why study Genesis 1 through 11? The accuracy of history is consistent throughout the Bible, starting with Genesis. We had Helmut Welk here back in September. We watched a documentary by Del Tackett called Genesis is History. We have that in the library if anybody wants to watch it. But there's lots of resources to show us. Do you realize that even in every archaeological dig they've ever done related to events and history in the Bible, everything they found has supported the Bible? There hasn't been one piece of archaeological evidence to show the Bible is inaccurate in its history. Number four, the story of creation is consistent with scripture and science. 
This is a wedge argument Satan wants to put between a believer and science. A wedge argument is you've got to say that these two things really aren't compatible. But that's not true. While creation science does not answer every question concerning creation, it has the best probability of its accuracy because it's based on God's word and looks at the creation story through the lens of God's word, who God is, how creative he is, and how much of science at its inception was based upon a biblical worldview. The early founders of many of the fields of science argued this as they did their experiments. And the early founders reaffirmed that God put everything together. It's like one famous scientist said that as we go along and we learn new things and we discover more about the natural laws, it's like we're thinking God's thoughts after him. That we're discovering what he's already laid out. The issue for some is that science today, which by the way has been politicized, isn't compatible with religion and that all miracles can be explained or will be explained away at some point down the road. The battle here is the natural worldview. There's no miracles, there's no God versus a supernatural worldview. And we see the creation is mentioned many times throughout the Bible. Just one example in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And then why study Genesis 1 through 11, the problems in believing the other so-called biblical theories of creation? In my um, classes at school at Liberty, we looked at Bernard Ram. We liked his book on hermeneutics and how he interpreted scripture, but he was off on his view of creation. He said the Christian view of science and scripture in that book seeks a harmony of the geological record and the days of Genesis. He was an old earth creationist, that God created the world over a long period of time. Thus, you have these different layers in geology. Bernard Ram said, we believe that the fundamental pattern of creation is progressive creation. The gap theory, Schofield Bible. Uh, Schofield believed in this. According to him, there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that the world was created in perfection and sin reigned between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. The world was destroyed and Genesis 1-2 was the recreating of the world. It's called the gap theory. Theistic evolution is the most popular one, that God used evolution over billions of billions of years to create the world. And finally, the first human being, Homo sapien, was Adam, after all that evolutionary process. And then the intelligent design theory. Even atheists are starting to believe that there was some uncaused cause out there who intellectually organized this world and the ecosystems that we have, but we can't define who that God is. But one major problem with all these theories, they lack biblical support because it puts death before sin when scripture describes death as the consequence of sin. Death, destruction, all these things occur before Adam and many of these theories happens on the scene. So what's the application? We must get Genesis 1, 1, 1, 11, 1 through 11 right if we're going to be able to trust 
the rest of the Bible. The key word there is trust. We have to get those first 11 chapters right. Second of all, we must know in our hearts after we study that science and God's word are perfectly compatible. They fit together. Thirdly, we must accept that people are going to strongly disagree with us, believers and non-believers alike. We have to share our reason for the literal 24-hour day of creation, if you believe that. And of course, it's up to every believer to sort that out for themselves. But it's interesting that we use the same word day in Genesis 1 in the Hebrew as we do in Joshua chapter 7. And if you're going to say a day is not a literal 24-hour period, then you flip over to the story of, of the Israelites going around Jericho for seven days. Did they go around 700 years, 7,000 years? How long did they go? It's understood that they went for a day because the same Hebrew word is used. Steer people to do research for themselves. Some people have never heard the words creation science or been exposed to its teachings. In my class at Scott Community College, Helmut Welk always comes in. He's the president of the Quad City Creation Science Association and talks about you know, atheism versus intelligent design. And it's interesting, many of these students have never heard those terms, creation, science. So there's answers in Genesis, AIG.org. I encourage you to go to the ARC, go to the Creation Museum. Out of San Diego's Institute of Creation Research. As I mentioned, Helmet right here, Quad City Creation Science Association. All kinds of resources that people can find out more. Number four, we must not be ashamed to share what we believe. We must not be silenced by the opposition. This is an extremely critical theological stance to take. It affects how you view the rest of the Bible and its authority in our lives. Fifthly, we must learn from the life stories of the forefathers of our faith. And that's where we're going to turn our attention now for the rest of this message as we talk about unpacking the baggage in our lives, the life stories, <clears throat> what we learn from Abraham, Isaac, Lot, Jacob, Joseph, and others. Take your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a very important passage because Paul wants us to learn the lessons from the Old Testament saints, the good and the bad. And he makes a great case for why it's important we do this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Paul said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, some translations say ignorant, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Notice these words, this word all. Verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, stop there and think about this. All the Israelites experienced the same things together. The crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day with the tabernacle telling them to move, all these things. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of the Israelites, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you think that you're better than these people, you better be careful about your thought process. And then verse 13, he says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's saying, learn from these mistakes that these people made. Don't repeat them in your life. Don't bring in the heartache and the consequences of sin into your life. Look at what they did and learn from it. And that's what he's saying. The same things, verse 13, the same temptations they had, you will face as well. So how do we unpack our baggage of ancestral and habitual sin? The Bible says that the sins of our fathers and mothers goes down sometimes the third and the fourth generation. But it's up to you and I to look and learn, as we just read, and break that cycle in our lives. The second key verse in all of Genesis is this, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You might want to write that reference down. It's so important because Joseph, after his father died, his brothers are standing before him, the ones who have mistreated him through most of his life. He had every opportunity to show revenge, to pour out his wrath upon them. Instead, look what he says in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The key to this verse and what I'm about to say is that we, are in, we as humans have to deal with the emotions of injustice, of abuse, pain inflicted upon us, by learning through God's agape love to forgive. We have to learn through the Spirit not to seek revenge, not to, but to reconcile if we can and to put these things in our past. As Christians, we need to have short-term memories about our hurts and our wounds, or we'll become paralyzed in our walk with Christ. That means we have to come to the place where we deal with these things. Too many people, and I've met some even this week, came to my office and talked to me. Too many people let their hurt fester and affect those around them. Jobs are lost. Relationships get damaged beyond repair. Bad decisions are made that affect people for the rest of their lives. Bitterness has an adverse effect on a person mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Malcolm E. McCourt, we used this quote before, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. If we're honest and think about it, and we deal with bitterness, that's what we think. There's a story about Dr. Jim Moore. He's a Methodist pastor down in Houston, Texas. He talked about a young, mid-20 wife that came into his office. And she was weeping. She held on a chair with her uh, hands, so her knuckles were white. And she relayed the information that just hours before her husband who was out in the farm field, 
was tragically killed instantly in a farm accident. And he said to the past, she said to the pastor, what am I going to do? I have three preschool children to take care of without them. But then she looked at him in the face and said, but you know what? I can either get bitter or I can get better. I can either get bitter or I can get better. And that became a title of a book that that, po- that pastor wrote. You can grow bitter or you can grow better. One way that we can get better rather than bitter is to develop a thankful heart. We have to start each day with this prayer. O thou who has given me so much, I pray that you give me yet one more thing, a grateful heart. Over here, you see some bricks. You see a backpack. And what happens is, is that we allow these things to get built up into our life. Maybe it's anger. Or maybe it's lust. Maybe someone physically or emotionally abused us. And what do we do over time? Whatever the sin is in our life, we allow it to build up. And we build walls of defense because we don't want to really deal with it completely. We kind of want to hold on to that sin because... Sometimes, in a twisted way, it makes us feel good. It makes us a victim. It makes people feel sorry for us. And what happens is, over time, it's like carrying this backpack. I loaded this up last night in my basement. I thought I was about going to die bringing it up to my car. I didn't realize how much I put in it. But you carry around a backpack with weights in our life. And they affect how you respond to people on a daily basis. If you live with bitterness, you get angry at people. And this scripture teaches us that we need to unload the weights out of our lives. To let go of the verbal abuse, emotional abuse. If we can reconcile it, that's great. Some of these are very big, big sins in our life that we have to take out. But if we don't deal with them... They build up. They become very heavy. They affect how we live our lives. And if we're not careful, we build a wall that people can't break into. They can't talk to you about these things or about anything because you're afraid for people to see who you really are and what's really happened in your life. And Joseph gives us that example of what to do and how to unpack the baggage the sin in our life. So in your notes, here's some things some uh, uh, things to apply to help you. First of all, we have to see the sin for what it is. The number one thing you can do to solve a problem is to realize and admit that you have a problem. And that's hard. Some people think, well, I can keep carrying that baggage around. I can continue to have that root of bitterness I can face that person every Thanksgiving and Christmas with a smile on my face, but down in my heart, we know that that relative has hurt me deeply, and I'm not going to say anything. We have to realize there's a problem, and it's affecting us. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life... Is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along 
with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's the root of sin right there. The pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh. The root of all sin is found in those three components. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The problem is, many of us, we try to solve these problems in a worldly way. We run to alcohol. We run to pornography. We run to other addictions in our life to try to escape the pain rather than to deal with the sin in our life. And the world says we need to seek happiness, but you know what the Word of God says? We're to seek holiness. And when we seek holiness, God will bring blessing and happiness into our life as a byproduct. But the goal is not to seek a salve to heal yourself temporarily, but to get down to the root and pull the root of the problem out. Divorce in the world's eyes. We see people carry out revenge because of the anger of divorce. There's a pastor in Florida, found out his wife was cheating on him, so he went out that next week and cheated on his wife. I'm going to get back at her. That's a great way to respond, isn't it? Or as Billy Graham's sister found out, she got divorced and got involved quickly in another relationship, and you've probably heard it documented around the time Billy Graham passed away. And she jumped right into another relationship, got married, and quickly got divorced. And she went home and found forgiveness and grace from Billy Graham. Think of our, one of our own people, Tina Kepi, how she did it the right way. She went through terrible jaw surgery at the same time going through an excruciating divorce. And with the help of many of you in this room praying for her, God has really done an amazing thing in her life despite the circumstances that she's faced for herself. Second of all, we need to deal biblically with the sin in your life or that you inherited in your life. Sometimes we bring the consequences upon ourselves because of actions we've taken, but sometimes as kids we've been physically, sexually, uh, verbally abused. Things happen to us that beyond our control. We didn't do it. But those sets of things have to be dealt with. The problem you and I have in general with sin is that we think we can beat the system. And we think what happened to others will not happen to me. David said in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Speaking to God, speaking to the fact that he was responsible for adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, and obviously the result was the death of their little baby that came as a result of that sin. The great lie of Satan is that we doubt God's word when it says you will reap what you sow. So under that point, surrender the consequences in the present and future to God. Surrender them. Say, here I am, Lord. Take me just as I am. I accept responsibility of what hurt I have done and the consequences of my action. Or 
I forgive those who do not, did, not, did inappropriate things to me. And I ask for emotional healing from you, Lord, and to make every attempt to reconcile. So whether you sinned and you have the outflow of the consequences or whether um, sin happened upon you, you have to repeat those things and ask God to forgive you. And over time, God will heal your heart. Trust me. Think about your car. In your car, you have a rearview mirror. Which is bigger, the rearview mirror or the windshield? The rearview mirror, which is smaller, okay? And so you look at that, and that's to help you see the traffic behind you, but it's also reminding you of the territory that you left behind. But the windshield is big and wide, letting you look out to the future and think about what is ahead. And so it is in your emotional life. The more you ask God to bring healing through his word, he will do it. Remember also that you have no rights to your life. We have to avoid the victim mentality. The only rights we have in this life as a human being is to die and be separated from God in hell. And anything above that is grace. And we all live in that grace today. Even those who are not believers live in that common grace temporarily in this life. I hope you believe that. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. At my home church, Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, you walk in to the sanctuary just below the wall line, is this huge banner, it says, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. We're alive, we have our personhood, but the spirit of God lives in each and every one of us. And it's by his grace that we live because the spirit of God fills us. We need to reject the attitude of being a victim. Paul <clears throat> never looked at himself as a victim. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In the King James, it says the chiefest. I am the chiefest of all sinners. God, why should everything go just the way I planned? That's kind of the way I've been thinking lately as I begin my day. I have my plan. I have my day timer laid out, but I try to say, God, why should it go the way I want it to go? You're in control. Expect the unexpected. Don't become a victim. And then learn to acknowledge the pain of the past and then move on. Acknowledge the pain of the past and then move on. In 2 Corinthians 4, I've heard Dale quote these verses before. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. It says that we are jars of clay. That's just common piece of pottery that was used in that time frame. 
Sometimes it would get hit by stones. Sometimes it would be beaten by the weather. But inside was what was of value and what was worth. And you and I, we're just merely uh, God's containers in this world. But the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we're growing more and more inwardly as we grow through this life because of our relationship with him. And then we need to reclaim the territory Satan has taken and give it back to God. A little short verse, Ephesians 4.27, and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, if you're honest, you give territory in your mind to some of the way the world thinks or Satan thinks. And we have to say, God, I'm going to take that back and I'm going to give it to you and fill our mind with the word of God. To not think like the world, especially when we're dealing with pain and hurt and emotional uh, destruction in our life, we have to think from God's perspective and that's hard, that's difficult. And then seek help from godly counsel and God's word to break out of the cycle of habitual sin and dysfunction. That's why I'm so glad that we, we have some godly uh, counselors in our community. Thankfully, Lori Peterson's here. She's one of our own, and she has a counseling practice. Matt Lettington is a good friend of mine. He's another one. There's several people that we can go to to help us break out of these cycles of destruction. In Proverbs 11:14, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance you can wage your war in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Two more very quickly and we'll be done. Just remember that you cannot change your past, but you can change your future. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. Not that we don't learn lessons from it, not that we don't enjoy the past blessings, but we can't live in that land or hope that we're going to go back there. And even the bad things, they don't have to loom in our lives. Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, we have this thing called a memory. And Satan can use that memory against you in so many ways. But, but we need to remember, and we need to be an overcomer by defying sin's gravity. Be an overcomer. In Revelation 12, 11, it talks about overcoming Satan. And they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, by how God transformed their lives. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Speaking of those who are martyred for the faith. Know for sure that you're going to fall down, but you've got to get back up. This is what's different about the world. Many people just give up. They just fall into that cycle of dysfunction, and then it passes on to the next generation and the next generation. And they try, and then they give up. But don't give up. Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And lastly today, develop a support team to encourage and make you accountable for the long haul. Get some people around you to pray with you, to have somebody you can call when you're home and you're going through this bout of discouragement and you're thinking about the emotional pains of the past or the consequences of some of the things that have occurred in your life. We need buddies. We need one another. We need to have somebody we can call and pray with and check in with us from time to time. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for their work. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone and when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And through a man might prevail against, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, threefold cord is not easily broken. Downstairs in our Awana, we have uh, a rope, and that rope has many, many strands to it. It's made in a circle, and the, te- the kids love to play four-way tug with it. And you know what? That rope is really strong. You've got four kids pulling in different directions. And the reason it's strong is because it has many, many strands of rope tied together, bound together. We need more than ourselves to make it through this life. Romans tells us we're not an island to ourselves. We need each other. So here's our key thought today as we close. The self-existent God chose to reveal himself to us through his creation and his plan of redemption for mankind whom he created. He chose to reveal himself. And then he provided a way when mankind failed to have redemption and restore the relationship to a perfect, holy, and righteous God. Remember what it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. God is self-existent. He exists independent of any cause. He's the uncaused cause. He's transcendent, which means he's not like us. He's out there. He's everywhere at the same time. Too many people try to put God in a human form and think of him as their buddy, but he is a holy, he is a righteous, he's a powerful God. And so what will you do with the bricks in your life? Will you continue to carry them along like a backpack or will you deal with your sin and hurts, the baggage of your past and feel the freedom of having dealt with it once and for all? And again, you gotta continue to seek God and seek forgiveness or seek help from God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, Jesus was crucified, not for anything he did. He was perfect and without sin. He faced the ultimate injustice. And so by doing that, he sympathizes with us and knows what we go through. And he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's bow for prayer. I just want you to take a moment to look into your heart and life as we leave this book of Genesis in the story of Joseph. Think of these bricks and these weights on this table up here. Some of you are really tired of carrying the weight in your life. And only you and God, maybe even a few other people, even really know what you've been through in your life. Some of it may have been of your own doing. Other things may have been imposed upon you by others. But are we going to be bitter or are we going to get better? I encourage you to pause for just a moment. A moment of decision. Maybe there's an area of your life that you've been managing as your sin. We're not called to be sin managers. We're called to get rid of our sin. We're called to 
take our emotional hurts if we've been sinned against and take them to God in the quietness of this moment. Do business with God and say, Lord, help me to break this cycle of dysfunction in my life. Father, help us. We're prone to run to the salve of this world's doing. There's lots of things the world would say to deal with these things in our life, but they're merely a band-aid. They're merely a short-term fix because we know over time if we don't get to the root and pull out the root, then we'll keep running back to these addictions or these things, ideas of the world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you it speaks to all these things. These are not easy topics to talk about, but Lord, we thank you that you can bring healing, emotional, physical, and spiritual healing in our lives. I pray today for those that are here that, Lord, the areas of their life were an area that they need to surrender to you, that, God, you would help them to do it. Help them to seek someone out if they need someone to pray with them or walk through the journey of messy grace as they try to leave these things behind in their life. We have plenty of people who are willing to do that. We pray, Lord, that they would sense the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome these things in their lives. And we just pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.